Yeah, it's so nice to be here with you, actually, Anne. Um, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. And uh been looking forward to this conversation since our last one, um, where we kind of talked about what we wanted to go into here. And it was felt like leaving that, it felt like a very intimate and raw discussion. So uh, there's a bit of, I'm definitely feeling a bit of nerves coming into this one, because I know that we're one to kind of go into and explore some some personal stuff, as well as theoretical material from your new book. Congratulations, American Dharma. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I go ahead. I also feel a little nervous. I find the podcast um, format is quite vulnerable. Um, it's much easier mm. to write your answers and polish them. Um, but I do appreciate the kind of aliveness of the dialogical approach. And mm. you are definitely an easy person to talk to. So, Yeah, you as well. And uh, I, it was actually funny reading through your book yesterday uh, a bit more. And uh, you, talk, you sort of talk about um, the type of um, ethnography that you do and how being able to talk to people and people feeling comfortable with you is a huge part of that process that you go through as a researcher and that, you know, the more comfortable people are, the more they share and the more intimate you can get with, you know, with them and see what's actually happening. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, yeah. I think, um, you know, ethnography is, it is really a social art and, you know, one of the, I think it's a good thing, but one of the things that I notice is that, you know, I work with a lot of different types of communities and some of the communities are, you know, sometimes in a little tension with each other, you know, so, you know, secular Buddhists have come under, you know, critique from uh, some of the um, heritage Buddhists. Um, and I think those critiques are valid. Um, and secular Buddhists have critiqued, you know, more traditional Buddhists. And I think their critiques are valid too. Um, but I, you know, I, I feel like all other communities think of me as a friend, you know, they often mm. are friend Anglo. Um, and so that's, you know, been really super for me. Um, cause I think it does, you know, enable more access. Um, although sometimes I, yeah, sometimes I, kind of wonder is you know I think there's you know closeness gives you know a different type of uh knowledge um but I think it also you know can be challenging to um mediate closeness with critique um, yes you know like because it's easier it's much e and you know it's interesting because I'm working with a, a new colleague uh, a colleague on an on our new on my new project it's going to be a co-written monograph um, with my colleague, um, uh, Dr. Amy Langenberg, and she's a textualist. So she's, you know, just starting uh, working ethnographically. So we've had some really interesting conversations about the different kinds of anxieties that working with text and human beings kind of produce. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, with, with, with being close to your research populations, I think that your critiques tend to be, I, th I feel like my, I do try and critique, obviously, still, that's my job as an academic, but I do aim for what uh, Eve Sadgerick calls reparative critiques. So a reparative critique, critique uh, Eve Sadgerick is a queer theorist. Um, she, she's, she died, unfortunately, but she's a brilliant kind of queer theorist. And she talks about the reparative critique as really still seeing the object or the, you know, the person or the group that you're critiquing as a whole person so you don't just you know reduce them to that critique um mm. and that really resonated with me because i think that's much more my 
you know, my approach to ethnography. Um, yeah, to critique with, you know, a vision of the whole person and not just reducing the data to the critique. Hmm. Yeah, no, and it, it comes through in, in your writing, I think. Um, definitely feels there's a personal element to it for me when I when I read through that's um it doesn't feel like I'm reading a book published by Yale University Press in a way if you know what that if you know what I mean <laughs> yeah I don't know even though it's very rigorous it's very personal too yeah I think it's really you know I think one of the great things about religious studies as a field is it's very messy it's a very messy field and there's a lot of divergent uh, you know, points of view of what the scholar's role should be in religious studies. Um, and I think that gives, you know, more kind of freedom to, um, you know, experiment with different forms of scholarship than if I was just, you know, in the sociology of religion. I mean, there are, you know, there, there's, there's obviously multi multiple approaches within the sociology of religion, but I think religious studies just, it just gives, you know, a little bit more freedom to, for scholars to have different, you know, distances and closenesses to their research kind of areas. So that's really mm -hmm. the whole debate around the scholar practitioner. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's a theme that's been um, run throughout this Buddhist Geeks project. I mean, I think probably most of the academics we've talked to have been scholar practitioners. I, I saw, I think it was in your book that estimated roughly around 50% of um, Buddhist scholars are probably scholar practitioners, at least a quarter of them are out of the closet, maybe another quarter are in the closet, something like that. Yeah. Um, Buddhist studies has definitely, you know, been a field that has, you know, a strong, yeah, a strong presence of practitioners. Some of the, you know, first scholars in North America were, you know, amongst the first, you know, white American um, practitioner, practitioners of Buddhism. Um, and yeah, there are, you know, there's, there are scholars that I know who, that I know are Buddhist, but that they don't, you know, kind of publicly, you know, declare that. And I think, you know, some of it is a real anxiety that their scholarship will be dismissed as apologetic. Um, mm -hmm. There's some, you know, really valid critiques of the scholar practitioner position. Um, I do think that it does produce, it does slant scholarship. Um, I would just say that scholarship without a, I, you know, and I, 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 and a relationship to tradition also, you know, slant scholarship. Um, so I think that Every, everything slanted. So yeah. it's kind of what I'm, what I think we're going to be yeah. talking about. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, there's locations, you know, where, where, where you start from, you know, definitely influences, you know, so many things, not even like the question that you ask, like what questions you begin with. Um, and then there's also, you know, there's also, um, scholars who are you know pretty anti-buddhism as well like there's scholars mm. who i think start off with a kind of more sympathetic kind of stance towards buddhism and you know scholars who you know are neutral in, in quotation marks and then there's scholars who have practiced buddhism or have been you know disappointed by practice and i think that their you know their their disappointment or previous relationship will also you know, influence what they what they choose to study. Um, so yeah, it's it's really complicated, and I just there is a whole area you know within religious studies on the insider outsider question and the scholar practitioner. And, mm -hmm. um, I just find it a really fertile area in our field. Something just really juicy. Um, yeah.
Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, what you're saying for me, it's like a perfect segue into talking about your book because it seems like your thesis is that there is a sort of emergence of, of, of what, what you call a postmodern religion, postmodern Buddhism. And some, and part, part of how that's characterized is by kind of the letting go of the modern idea that there is some sort of objective universal place from which we can have a perfect view or a God's eye view of reality. And um, that in fact, it's like, well, wherever we're standing, looking at the thing, whatever the thing is, <laughs> it's like that we're, we're going to see something different depending on where we are, where we're located, as you said. Yeah. And, yeah. That's more or less my thesis. Is it okay if I just kind of nuance it? Please. Yeah, yeah absolutely. would love yeah. to hear. So I think, you know, essentially I'm responding to, you know, which all scholarship is a kind of response to the scholarship that's come before. So, mm. you know, scholars generally settled on the framework of uh, Buddhist modernism or also sometimes referred to as Protestant Buddhism um, to describe, you know, contemporary forms of Buddhism, especially uh, contemporary Western forms of Buddhism, like, you know, American convert Buddhism. Um, and, you know, what I basically you know, kind of discovered in actually with Buddhist Geeks was one of the early kind of examples that before I did, so I did, you know, research, I did a little ethnographic study on the East Bay Meditation Center. And then shortly after I did a little ethnographic study on, you know, Buddhist Geeks when it was still before it died and was reborn. Um, and, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that was a headache for me. Um, but you know, they're two quite different communities in many ways, you know, very different demographically. Uh, but in mm -hmm. both cases, you know, when I was theorizing the ethnographies, you know, I felt that, you know, the material at hand didn't, you know, basically didn't fit into the Buddhist modernist uh, framework. And so then I looked at, you know, I asked myself, well, what, you know, what comes after modernity? Um, so obviously, you know, immediately went to post-modernity, um, and also to post-colonialism, because modern Buddhism, in a way, is also colonial Buddhism. It, it, modernity and colonialism can't really be separated. So then mm -hmm. I you know, basically, I, I didn't do that so much in the Buddhist Geeks uh, article, but with the East Bay, I really looked at like the post-colonial as well. Um, and so, you know, I, I basically, you know, just did these two articles and, and published them in uh, journals and then... The Buddhist Geeks one I published in the Journal of Global Buddhism and Franz Metcalf, who's an editor there, was like, you know, this is really a book-length project. Um, and so mm. you know, that was the start of American Dharma. And, you know, essentially, you know, I, I do I do open it in the chapter and say, well, what, you know, what, 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 what is Buddhism entered post-modernity? Um, but I do want to have, you know, I'm a little hesitant <laughs> of calling it postmodern buddhism and i don't know if you've gotten to the conclusion yet of the book but in the conclusion i basically look at you know the postmodern um the ultra modern the post-secular and post-colonialism yes. and i think all of those interpretive frameworks offer insight into what's happening in buddhism now but i wouldn't say one of them you know fully captured what's happening so it's very postmodern of you. It is very postmodern. <laughs> what the meta modern, which I kind of feel like I missed an opportunity there to get a couple of pages in on the meta modern. 
Well, I'd love to talk about that today. So yeah, uh, maybe we can loop back to that. I want you to teach me about it. I, I'm going to be interviewing you for that part. <laughs> I'd love to talk about it. It's a, it's a really interesting topic. Yeah. yeah okay. So, so you, you introduced, you know, several other interesting f- phrases there, post-colonial, post-secular, uh, ultra-modern. Yeah. These are, these are really interesting to me, not being an academic, but really appreciating the, yeah, like you said, these are different ways of looking at what seems to be overlapping phenomena. Would yeah. you say that's accurate? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's differences between, you know, each, you know, each, each framework points to different things, but there is overlap between them. So for example, some people talk about the post, uh, there's a couple of sociologists actually that quote, and they talk about in the book and they talk about the post-secular um, as being the subs, as basically being post-modernism um, related to specifically religious and spiritual life. Um, so they see it basically the post-secular as a kind of subsect of the postmodern. Um, but some people use the post-secular because they don't like the postmodern. You know, they just think it's kind of redundant and kind of vacuous and it, it just can't do the kind of analytic work that they want it to do. Um, so, and I think, you know, well, I think the best, you know, I think in a way, you know, David, Ch- I want to kind of give a shout out to David Chapman, who I really respect and find a very, you know, provocative and interesting figure in contemporary Buddhism. And, you know, I'd kind of, started a correspondence with them for research and then you know I told him about I was going to frame you know use the the postmodern framing for Buddhist geeks and he'd written this hilarious quote um about why I shouldn't use the postmodern like he he thought that I was right in terms of this you know new the new developments in Buddhism cannot be contained within Buddhist modernism but he was you know kind of suspicious of the term postmodernism and I, I don't know if you remember, but I actually read his his quote out at the Buddhist Geeks conference, uh, you know, TED talk. I kind of TED style talk I gave, and mm-hmm. everyone laughed so much. It was like the best part of the the talk, which was you know quite funny. I think I made the joke about like, oh, oh dear, the best part of my um, presentation was actually from David Chapman. <laughs> um, so but I guess like you know the reason I want to kind of highlight you know the reason I want to trouble you know the the use of the postmodern is because I would hate that to put readers off the book you know like I think like the data is more important than the theoretical framework that I use to describe it you know so if postmodernism doesn't work like I'm happy to let it go you know um I'm not you know kind of holding tightly to the postmodern I think that you know I think that cultural theorists in general and you know are struggling to really answer the question definitively of what comes after modernity um and also what what's beyond modernity you know not just after historically but beyond as in you know pushing against the theoretical you know kind of value the, the values and the theoretical models of modernity so also just using like, you know, Buddhism after and Buddhism beyond modernity, just, you know, those two terms, I think, can also be really useful to kind of play with and think through. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, in, in in the introduction to the book, you talk about uh, kind of a one way of describing the postmodern condition, which is from, uh, is it Leotard, yeah. the theorist? Yeah. And he, he described it as having an in, incred, incredulity. 
I'm really Incre- bad at pronouncing things. I'm from Incredulity. Yeah, I, 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 I'm already messing it up. <laughs> I've, I've, said, I've made many really simple blunders with pronunciation. I think, yeah, incredulous. Like it's yeah, incredulous. Right? Yes, incredulous towards yeah. meta narratives. Yeah, yeah. And um, I thought that was a. I, I like that as a as a way of describing. Um, yeah, me too. And I, you know, I think I really ran with that in my analysis of Buddhist geeks um, because you were so. I mean, you know, modernist forms of Buddhism. Say, let's just take the example of like you know Boomer Buddhism and say someone like Jack Cornfield you know, they really bring in obviously a lot of different discourses. You know, it's not like they're teaching, it's like Jack Cornfield is teaching, you know, straight up Theravadan Buddhism. He brings, you know, a lot of psychotherapy in. Um, but I thought there was a way in which the Buddhist Geeks Conference, you know, conferences and, you know, podcasts, you know, really explicitly embraced the need to bring in different discourses. Um, so I thought, you know, I thought, I just thought that, it just seemed like a really good fit between, you know, that definition of the postmodern and what was happening in kind of contemporary Buddhism. And I think I also, I'm not sure if it's in the book, but I think it's in one of the, one of the articles I wrote on Buddhist geeks where you say, you know, something about the end of isms or there's no one ism to capture, you know, you can't rely on just one ism anymore. Um, so actually, yeah, I was, I was kind of wondering, I, I noticed you'd written a, series of tweets around the end of meta narratives and the end of well that was inspired by reading your book so i'm really interested i mean like where are you at now i mean because you know i i did the buddhist geeks field work probably about you know my first round about five or six years ago um like what's how do you feel about meta narratives currently you know in the i mean you've i've been on a learning journey you've been on a learning journey i'm sure these last six years yeah for sure yeah, it was so interesting. I, I liked that. I like that way of describing it. Like, and and sometimes I hear it phrased as like there there are no grand meta narratives. That that's a little bit different than how he, that, how he phrases it. But um, I think to me that's that's where maybe a f- few years ago I found myself like that position made a lot of sense, and I find myself kind of arguing for that. You know, and every time I heard someone trying to prop up a kind of totalizing system i'd feel the impulse to try to you know point out the ways in which it doesn't work and kind of point to you know the the limitations of uh, systematizing and um and creating these sort of large stories um which in a way you know it's it's interesting to me because you know modern the whole modern scientific endeavor already seems to have figured this out quite a while ago. You know, the, the whole idea, I, I remember Richard Feynman's definition of um, science, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, yeah, already there's, you know, Karl Popper's yeah, um, no, I mean, whole, that's, you know, that's, whole notion of falsifiability. Yeah. It's already built in um, to modern science. Yeah, but remember that's kind of responding to an arrogance in science. Yes. Because really in each system, you know, there are, there are always counter narratives, aren't there? You know, there's a, there's a main narrative of science and some, you know, some people like to distinguish between scientism and science, you know, and how scientism, you know, is a kind of ideological hardening of science and how, you know, some people argue, uh, some, you know, sociologists of science or feminists of science say, 
that actually goes against the spirit of science, which should be, mm-hmm. you know, kind of more kind of modest, kind of humble openness. Uh, but yeah, I guess, you know, just within, within the major narratives there are, you know, in the systems themselves or, or also counter narratives, aren't there? Kind of pushing, yeah. you know, those, those. Yeah. Which brings a big question mark, you know, onto the, onto the narrative. And I, I, you know, what I found for a long time is that when, when those question marks came up, that the way that I used to handle that was to try to integrate the other narratives into my meta narrative, you know, and uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but I studied with Ken Wilbur, who was yeah, a, no, no, a I'm really, I'm really glad you've taken this turn in the conversation because <laughs> I, I really relate to that. Like, I feel like in my, if if, you, if it's okay to, sorry to, no, please, you, but I, I just noticed like a delight when you said I used to integrate, but I think that. I, I got really cathected around the notion of integration. Um, and I found, you know, I really, I really was drawn to those systems. Um, mm-hmm. Like Wilbur to some degree, although I've always found him kind of difficult. I think I've had a kind of gender reaction to him and I'm probably yeah. meme or something like that. <laughs> but, but I like integration, you know, I've been really into like integrate the spiritual and the psychological. And I think the last few years I've really kind of, I've really kind of felt an aversion towards, you know, that movement towards integration. Like it just feels like it's very, it just, it doesn't feel, it feels like there's something really abstract and like orderly in it that I don't necessarily find in, you know, analysis of actual lived experience. And I've just kind of wondered what, like, why is there such a, like desire for for integration you know like why what's a what capacities do we have as kind of you know humans and kind of scholars to kind of live with just messiness you know Mm -hmm. to try and tie everything up nicely you know so i've just found myself more drawn to the movement you know away from integration really i don't don't know where have you landed with it yeah, well, you know, I, I love what you're saying, and I can I can totally relate to it. Um, well, I don't know about totally. I can relate to it. Um, what came to mind is I, I was, um, if, if I could indulge you with a personal story yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, on my favorite topic. Um, I, I remember being on, in 2009, I was at Spirit Rock um, Retreat Center with Jack Cornfield, who you mentioned, and Trudy Goodman, who was working with and I was doing a month long retreat there with my wife Emily. And during that retreat, this was 2009, I believe. During that retreat, um, I was practicing inquiry meditation. So I was just working with questions uh, Who am I? What am I? And what is love? Were the three questions that um, Jack and Trudy posed to me. And what was interesting too, though, is I had brought with me this, um, this book by. Uh, Robert Keegan, Immunity to Change. And I'd gotten into Robert Keegan, who's an um, adult developmental psychologist out of Harvard. And he's at the, I think he's in their, ed- in their adult education program. And he was one of uh, Wilbur's main sources when it came to um, developmental models. And I really liked his work. And I, you mentioned David Chapman. David's also, I think, been really yeah, influenced by Keegan. I've seen that. Yeah. And immunity change is interesting because it's not his theoretical work. He has other books that go more into the 
kind of the theory and the research stuff like evolving self and uh, um, one of his other ones. And, but this one was actually a practice book. So it's designed to help identify the hidden assumptions underlying one's um, meaning making system or structure. And I was doing this very complicated process over the course of the month while also doing a lot of inquiry practice. So, uh, you know, you talked about just letting things be messy. And and to me, there's, there's like a really beautiful parallel in the Dharmic traditions of, you know, asking questions and not knowing and, and resting in that sense of uncertainty. And to me, the, 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 the dual processes were really interesting to be in this sort of constant uncertain state and to be kind of doing this very complex process of kind of jujitsu, you know, mental jujitsu, kind of several steps that are sort of designed to kind of help you see your hidden assumptions. At the very end uh, of the month, when I finally got through this process, um, you know, I spent an hour every night doing, working on it after dinner, uh, I was shocked uh, to see one of the hidden assumptions that arose. A lot of them I, I recognize, I, like I could identify, but one of them, the one that I, I was like, what the fuck? That's not an assumption, is it? <laughs> was that I assume I should be able to resolve all uh, contradictions and paradoxes that arise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, that was the beginning of seeing, like making an object, uh, being becoming aware of this assumption that, you know, that, that it's a good idea to try to integrate everything or that it could be done. Um, and that was for me the beginning of kind of pushing off of what, what I now think of as you know, modernity. Yeah. I wonder if it is a kind of feature of the kind of modern self, you know, these kind, I mean, I know, you know, one of the big critiques of Wilbur is that he's, you know, like hyper modern, you know, and there's this like, and, and also related to a kind of like colonial spirit, you know, where you want to kind of map out the whole universe, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, you know, critics will draw parallels between that and the kind of um, kind of scientific and project of modernity, you know, where you see, I think, these emergences of these massive projects where it's all about classification and, and ordering, you know, different, I mean, m- most, you know, horrifically seen in, in, ra- in racial kind of racial science. I'm putting, you can't see me, but I've got, you know, massive, I'm doing quotation marks. Um, but there is a way in which I think that does reflect a certain, yeah, I think there is a kind of like really modernist spirit there. Um, yeah. And and then I think it's like young, you know, I think I was really influenced by, you know, I went, some people go from like Freud to young. I really went from young to Freud, <laughs> you know, because like young's all about like integration, and, you know, and I, I guess it's a kind of romantic impulse as well, you know, the community mm. and then the differentiation of the individual and then the integration of the individual and the kind of collective. And I was, that was definitely the kind of, you know, story that I, you know, really kind of lived my life by. And, and now I just feel like I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of, I've realized that I'm, I'm just kind of, I, I like that you said, you know, it, it made it sound really poetic, you know, just hanging out in don't know mind. Um, I kind of liked how that, that was, it, it felt more like noble and poetic than I actually feel, which is just more like, ah, you know, <laughs> all these things fit together and I don't want, them. they don't have to fit together, but it's 
quite hard to hold all these fragments. So yeah, yeah, it's quite complicated. It is, and you know, it was interesting doing Keegan's work because he didn't, you know, his practical recommendation was once you uncover your hidden assumptions, yeah. that you're not you're not trying to just overturn them actually, but but rather you you actually devise little real uh, little tests to test the reality of the assumption. You don't assume that they're not true. You actually start by coming up with things that where you feel like you can test those assumptions. So the test that I devised was to listen and ask questions instead of what I noticed I did instead was to take everything people were saying and try to immediately start to make sense of it in terms of how I see the world yeah. and or even try to argue perspectives with them, so the things that I didn't feel like they were getting, I wanted them to see. Um, or just trying to make sense of it in my meta narrative and feed that back to them. Um, you know, so I can, I know, now I see the arrogance now of that, <laughs> but at the time it just felt like a compulsion. Like I just felt like I needed to and had to do that. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, as you talk and it's making me think like, oh, what would that be like to be an academic, you know, with that kind of attitude? <laughs> because the academy is, you know, I mean, I, it is a place of positions, you know, and, and argument. Um, but I think that, you know, it's easier to do that in the classroom, you know, that kind of more questioning approach, because especially, you know, I teach a lot of stuff around critical race theory, for example, and social justice um, in a public school in Florida, which is, we're a really diverse school, which is fantastic. It's, you know, state school in Florida. Um, but the predominant culture is, you know, white and Christian. And if I kind of went in, you know, swinging my bat and, you know, often I kind of do want to do that, mm -hmm. I do, like I immediately lose half the class, if not more, you know. So I think, you know, teaching undergraduates, I've only taught in the South. I taught undergraduates in Texas, in Mississippi and Florida, you know, so quite conservative and kind of Christian centric states. Um, yep. I know them well. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're over here too. But I think that, you know, you just, you do have to, like, I really like that approach, you know, you have to kind of, you have to present things as questions, you know, um, otherwise you just don't get anywhere with teaching. But I think as a scholar amongst other scholars, you know, you kind of teeth, it's easier for your teeth to come out more. Do you know what I mean? It's easier to get into that well, combativeness. Yeah, it makes, makes sense because you all have similar kinds of backgrounds and theoretical you know frameworks to pull from and yeah and you know all like and to some degree we're all kind of narcissists right because we've all been the, we've all been the clever kids in the class you know uh, yeah. and there's a lot at stake you know i think in losing an academic kind of argument but i think it, mm. it, it does get easier when you get tenure you know i'm, I'm kind of noticing a kind of shift in you know i don't you know i've got a kind of uh, security and an establishment and so mm -hmm. it's good ground i think just to you know, try and, yeah, try and listen more and not feel like, like what you were saying, needing always to assimilate the other person to your kind of, you know, narrative of things. Um, so yeah, no, it's good. It's good to, it's good to kind of be reflexive of like the dynamics that are happening, you know, underneath, you know, content, you know, so that's a, you know, and you can really see that on the Buddhist blogosphere, right? I mean, there's so many vicious arguments. Wow. 
<laughs> oh, isn't, isn't that great? Oh, I know. <laughs> Seeming oh, paradox, yeah. but not really. Yeah. I mean, you know, around like mindfulness or racial justice work. I mean, yes. I, I just, you know, I've been, you know, narcissistically tracking my book, you know, on Google. Oh, what's, you know, is anything new on my book? Um, and, you know, someone had posted, you know, about my book on, on one of the Reddit threads and two people had just got really at it, you know, around racial justice. Um, it was really intense, you know, and I was like, oh, this is great material for my, for my next book. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, I think there's just a lot of, just a lot of really intense stuff happening in American Buddhism around yeah. sexual justice. Um, and not much, you know, not much listening on, you know, on most sites that I'm seeing, you know. I, I want to talk about that too. Um in our conversation, because I think that's a really, really, and we've talked about this in the past. Um, uh, I want to also loop back to your question about meta narratives, because I'm uh, haven't quite fully responded. Oh yeah, sorry, we got on that. No, no, it's okay. I'm trying to hold the meta thread here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so going back to what you're saying, um, I, I also sort of started to perceive Wilbur's work in, in the way you're describing uh, around the same time that I started questioning my own meta narratives. I was like, oh my God, I've just bought into this whole integral theory as this meta narrative and I've got to really question it. And and when I started doing that, I noticed like I started learning a lot from people when I asked them questions and people who I thought didn't know things or weren't sophisticated, like were teaching me things all the time. And I'm sure, I mean, I know as a scholar and the way that you do your work, that, that's probably always happening for you too, I'd guess. So, so. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, for me, something actually started to change around this whole thing uh, um, around uh, November 2016, interestingly enough. Mm. And I started to, and, and, you know, you talk about this in the introduction to the book, where you kind of talk about how there is a kind of dual critique of Buddhist modernism happening both from these sort of, um, I'm not sure how you phrase it here, both from the sort of post-modern kind of position, the fun, sort of fundamentalist position, and these new innovative forms of deinstitutionalized spirituality, that both of them are critical of modernity, but their critiques are different, clearly. They're not leveling the same exact critiques. Yeah. And how, in a way, how odd that is. Um, and, and I started to actually notice the same exact thing uh, post-Trump, which was that I was spending so much time critiquing modern theories and modern systems. But then I saw this you know, administration coming in who was also attacking modern theories and modern systems but, and, and, and basically having a huge influence on being able to deconstruct our modern democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And I started to feel like, oh, I can't do this anymore. I can't be helping tear this thing down from above while they tear it down from below if there's nothing to replace it that's better. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, I think that's a, you know, that's a kind of dilemma that a lot of, a lot of people find themselves in and it's a kind of, you know, it's a double, it's a kind of double-edged sword of, you know, post-modernity just as a, a quick kind of catch-all. Um, so, for example, you know, I think I think of like science, you know, the critique of science 
So, you know, feminists of, you know, both feminists and, you know, critical race theory, theorists have, you know, really taken on, um, you know, some of the, um, you know, really problematic aspects of scientism, um, you know, pointing out, you know, the, uh, how science is being complicit in, um, you know, social eugenics, for example. So they've mm-hmm. really pointed to the, you know, cultural construct, you know, construct, constructivist components of science and how science presents itself as objective, but has actually served, you know, the interests of dominant groups and really to the, you know, great violence against marginalized groups. Um, but then, of course, you know, with Trump, you have the same, uh, yes. you know, you have the, the, you know, basically, you know, conservative far right uh, spectrum also, you know, pointing out that science is socially con- not not in the exactly same terms, obviously, but you know, undermining science, you know, in service of you know, uh, yes. not responding to climate change. Right. So right. I think, you know that that was like oh my, you know, it's a, it's a kind of you know horrific moment for progressives, you know. Um, yeah. And, mm-hmm. You know, I think you know you you also see that in you know in uh, for example you know right kind of conservative and fundamental forms of governments, you know, I'd say Hindutva in India, who have used post-colonial theory, which, you know, is meant as a, is, is you know, in its origins, a very liberatory discourse uh, to work for marginalized populations, but they've used it as a way to, you know, promote their own kind of, you know, violence towards other minorities, such as, you know, the Muslim community in India. So there is this, you know, there is this historical, even before Trump, there is this, you know, historical kind of collusion of, you know, what we, what people would think of as, you know, inherently progressive or discourses that have been associated with progressives that are utilized in service of, you know, kind of violent kind of fundamentalist politics um, and that, you know, that's yes. something that I've been aware of for a long time because I studied at Rice with Jeffrey Kripal. He's a, he was works on American religion now, but he was trained as a scholar of Hinduism. And he wrote an amazing book called uh, Kali's, Ch- Kali's Child um, about uh, Ramakrishna. And he had a massive, uh, you know, lash from, the, from some sections of the Hindu community, especially conservative sections. And and so he'd been dealing, you know, dealing with that and he wrote about it. And, you know, as a student, I'd kind of engaged in a lot of conversations. Um, and then, you know, the same kind of, as you noticed, it kind of re- those kind of strange alliances, you know, re- have reproduced themselves over in the US. So, yeah, I think it's a real dilemma. And, you know, I, I think it's just I don't I don't I haven't got, you know, an answer of how to solve that dilemma. But I think it's like just being transparent about it's important to name it. You know, like how can how well, you know, how can we critique in a way that doesn't reproduce another form of violence, right? Just as a basic way of expressing it, um, you know, it, like is is are there only two possibilities offered to us? Like, do we have to just go back to modernity and not critique modernity? You know what I mean? <laughs> Clearly, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. You know. Yeah, I've been there, done that, tried yeah, that. Yeah, so. I just climate's about to collapse. Yeah, I know. I mean, we just find ourselves in a it's a mess. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a so huge like, mess. You know, we're in this like really difficult kind of cultural moment and yeah. Yeah, I just think we we need to just 
I think, you know, I'm really into Judith Butler talks about, she's got this great concept of imperfect alliances. Um, you know, like for, she talks about like marginalized groups kind of thinking together and kind of overcoming, you know, some differences. Um, and, and she said, that's what we're going to need, you know, in this present moment. Um, and, and that's kind of what I think, you know, is needed that, you know, there are going to be some, we need to have imperfect alliances um, to combat the other more, I think, violent producing alliances that we're seeing. So, yeah, so where are you at? I mean, how, where have you landed? Like, so you, well, you want to where am I landing? <laughs> I mean, is, this, is this a good time to talk about the meta model? Yeah, it seems like we're going that direction. Yeah. So why not? Um, well, I, I, it's, you know, it's still, it's becoming clear every day, I'd say, but, um, you know, something you said reminds me actually of, of, of Wilbur's work. And it's strange. I've been coming back around his work. No. <laughs> yes. And, and I think I had miss, I think I misunderstood and misclassified him as a modern thinker. I don't think he is actually now. Um, um, but took several years of critiquing and getting away from his work to come here maybe. But he had, he had an, an observation or something he called, he called the pre-trans fallacy or the pre post fallacy, which is that, you know, anytime you're dealing with something where you've got a pre, you know, say pre-modern, modern, postmodern is one example, the, the pre-modern and the postmodern can sound the same because they're not modern and they can be confused or conflated with each other because they sound the same. And he, he uses a really obvious example, um, from, uh, Lawrence Kohlberg's work on, um, on, on, the development of morality and ethics, you know, who, who asked these people, he asked in his research a question, you know, would you, if your, if your partner was sick and, um, and would had a life, life threatening illness and you don't have the resources to get the medicine you need, but you have an opportunity to steal some medicine from the pharmacist, would you do it? And if so, why? Yeah. And he said that basically these, there are three broad categories of responses that emerged from that. One was yes, one was no, and one was yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, and the first, yeah, yeah, two yeses. And 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 the the first one, and he called these the pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. And in the pre-conventional, they said yes um, because I can do whatever the fuck I want, and this is you know my partner, and fuck them, you know, along those lines. Yeah. And then the no was no, it's never right to steal or to um, do thing, you know, to, to break the law, even when this is, you know, going on, I'll find, I'll try to find some other way. Even if you tell me there is no other way, I'd rather w let my partner die than do that. Wow. And then the, the other one was, yes, I would do that. And, and then they would have a more complex justification or reasoning for why it, it, that acknowledged the conventional norms and didn't just trounce them he said yes i would do that um but and i understand that it, it's it's not it's not good if everyone started doing this our society would not be in a good place and yet you know the the, the particular situation and the and the morals and the ethics around her you know my partner's life supersede the conventional morality and that has to be taken into account 
And so, you know, um, Wilbur uses that example and talks about, you know, the things like, um, you know, like the sixties and seven, you know, sixties, um, Vietnam war, uh, protests and how there really were both of those groups present. You know, there were the sort of anarchists, like burn everything. And still, this is still happening, <laughs> you know, burn everything down, like just like, oh, there's a protest. Let's go fuck things up uh, and go smoke, you know, go smoke some weed and go, you know, have fun. And then there's people that are like, you know, they seem to really have, you know, understand the spirit of why it's important to, to go beyond the, con- you know, the, the conventions of the time and why there needs to be something new. Um, that that's more that's less violent and includes more truth and goodness and beauty. Mm. Um, so to me, like I, I go back, I'm going back to that now and and sort of feeling like there's got to be a way forward that doesn't lend itself toward collapsing those two because it's so dangerous right now. Mm. Um, like if we do lose our modern democracy, like with all of its problems, if it were just to collapse backward, you know, billions of people would probably die, you know, globally. If, 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 you know, if our systems collapsed, those systems are what's holding up this many billion people. So we would be screwed, like royally screwed. So for me, like given that, uh, uh, I sort of currently feel like there is a, there's a move beyond the deconstructive postmodernism, which is, you know, that's a Keegan yeah. term. Yeah. And he talks about reconstructive postmodernity, you know, that once you've pulled everything apart and there are no more grand narratives, meta narratives left, then you're free to start to construct. And this is David Chapman's term, fluid narratives. Like you can start to build narratives on the fly that are meta. You know, they are trying attempts to describe what's happening, but they don't take themselves so seriously and they can be relinquished once they've done their job or something like that. So for me, it's like I'm starting to feel into this possibility of like a meta modern Dharma, which is, you know, like what is the appropriate meta narrative for this time? you know, in this place, in this context, like what, what's, what's going to actually help us get through this tr- transition? You know, what do we need right now? And for me, it's like, oh, we need, there's certain things we need, like we need to be more embodied. We need to be more connected to our hearts and we need to be more in touch with the relational nature of human experience. Like those are things we actually need that are really important. And Dharma Dharmic traditions have those things to offer, even though they have a lot of other stuff to offer. So like, why not highlight those and start to reconstruct an, an, a narrative and a practice and a commun- and community, a meta dharma, a meta sangha, a meta buddhas out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of where I am at the moment, but it's like, you know, I, it's also very nascent. So I don't, if you push me hard, I'll probably, it'll probably collapse. <laughs> so. All right, that's really interesting. I just I got a couple of responses. So please, one response is this is like a little poke, um, but as you're please. telling me the story about Lawrence, is it Kohlberg, the the moral Lawrence Lawrence Kohlberg? Yeah. yeah. So I remembered that Carol Gillingham, who is a, mm-hmm. a feminist psychologist. Yes, he took on that story. She took on that case. You know. It's a bit like Sartre's case because Sartre talks about that. He talks about like if, you know, if a Nazi, if you hide it, if you're in France and, you know, you're hiding a Jewish person and a Nazi knocks on the door and says, you know, is there a Jewish person in the house? What, what's what's the ethical thing to say? Um, and so 
Lawrence is, you know, that's that's kind of taken away. It's a kind of similar quest, you know, similar kind mm-hmm. of formation of ethical case. But Carol Gillingham says she she works a lot with uh, gender difference, like and children. So she looks at the development of ethics in, you know, you know, when she was working, you know, at the time she was working just with, you know, male and female children. And she one one of the things that she noticed was that when she presented that dilemma to, I hope I'm getting this right because it's been a while since I read it. But <laughs> when she presented it to uh, female children, they said we just tap we tell the chemist like they were like well like not lie or do you know what I mean they were like more like we share the dilemma and appeal to the human the humanity of the person was it a chemist that they were trying to get something from something like that pharmacist or chemist or something yeah Yeah. and so that was really a kind of radical kind of way of thinking about the situation right like it was a wholly different way like would you lie would you not lie you know but they were like oh we'll just tell them your dilemma like they they kind of like disrupted that whole way of approaching that dilemma of to lie or not to lie I mean, I don't think it would have worked in the case of the Nazi, but um, right. I just re- I just remembered it, and it just made me think: like, are there other ways of approaching these dilemmas that that we that you know we or Wilbur haven't really kind of thought of? Um, but I think with like the me- okay, so with the metamodern, um, so what one of the reasons that I didn't include the metamodern was. Well, one is as I came, I heard about it really late, um, but I was still writing the book when I heard about the Modern, and I, I, it was a blog post, you know, so it was a kind of abbreviated version. Um, but it sounded to me, you know, the same as affirmative. Did you say affirmative postmodernism? What Wilbur uses was it affirmative or constructive? Uh, uh, Keegan has a term reconstructive okay. postmodernism. <laughs> You know, because within postmodernism, many theorists like postmodern theologians and postmodern theorists and, you know, I think Wilbur as well, have delineated between these two movements in the postmodern, you know, one the more deconstructive and one the more kind of affirmative. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I wasn't really like I wasn't really sure what the like what is the metamodern just the affirmative postmodern or does it do more than, you know, the affirmative postmodern? So I was kind of resistant to it because I felt like it was already contained within the narrative of the postmodern. But when people think of the postmodern, it's like they only go to the deconstruction. Well, that seems to be what's mostly associated. Yeah, I think somehow it's kind of, you know, unfolded like that. But I think just as, you know, we were talking about like, you know, with science, I do think in these, you know, in these discourses, you know, there's always multiplicity. Um, but yeah, I think I am. I'm definitely and and maybe metaplicity. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and I, I'm definitely like my sensibility is drawn. Like I was, you know, I was really like I liked what you were saying about like this fluidity and you know I, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Derrida, but he talked about like I'm probably totally misquoting him and making a fool of myself. But you know about holding, you know, holding terms lightly or under erasure. You know, so just this sense of and also, I think, you know, I guess one way for me that's much more familiar is these debates within feminism, right? So within feminism, there was some, you know, there's been a long dialogue about like, you know, 
if we deconstruct the category of woman, how can we do some political work? You know, like how can we like do march under women's rights when we're deconstructing, right. you know? Yeah, there's some contradictions there. Yeah, so you know, one of the responses which I, you know, found really kind of appealing and compelling was this idea of you know strategic essentialism, which, which is in a way you know you're holding the category of woman or you're holding a narrative, but you know, but loosely, you know, realizing that it, it's kind of you know a false category because you know the lives of you know, white middle class women are really different from the lives of, you know, working class, you know, black women, you know, because intersectionality has been a huge challenge to modernist feminism. Mm-hmm. No, so, so yeah, I think that's a really, you know, for me, that's a really appealing way, you know, of being in the world. I guess one of the questions I have for you around this is like, what, what why not just meta modernism? Like, why meta Dharma? Like, what's Dharmic here? Like, you, I'm I'm curious as to how how what role you see Buddhism playing in the meta modern. So. Well, I'm not I'm not sort of for me I don't equate Dharma and Buddhism uh, anymore. Oh, yeah, well, tell me more. <laughs> but <laughs> um, <the> table. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, so so first, I mean, I'm I'm not like super up on meta modernist theory, but I I know enough to know it it arose out of kind of philosophy and art criticism and art critique. So to me, it's, it's um, very much a p- original application is t- to seeing art and popular culture. Um, and, you know, David Foster Wallace is yeah. of- often used as an early metamodernist figure and there's some other interesting examples. Um, but, you know, a, that, that sort of strain of thought seems to also where there's a move from irony to sincerity is one of the kind of characteristics of meta modernism. Um, and there's, I think for me, I'd, I'd say there's a move from deconstruction to reconstruction um, that one still has to apply that type of new thinking to things. And so that's why I think something like meta Dharma can make sense. Um, you know, if it's a term that helps bring people together to do something useful, uh, I don't think by itself, like I'm not that interested in the term, but I think it, it might point to something that people are feeling and identifying with. And the phrase meta is so, I've, I've just noticed in popular culture, it's, it's become extremely um, up. And it's like, I see and hear people using that term all the time now in, in different context yeah, it's like yeah. something about the term meta seems to be catching hold so that's why i, I for me I, I like to think of it you know in terms of and dharma and and so when i think of dharma it's like okay well what is dharma um that's a good yeah, question what is dharma? That was my next question <laughs> God, <beat> you there. <laughs> i don't know you know i don't know what it is that's one answer yeah um and I think that's an honest answer. That's like a Zen answer. Um, another another answer to me is like, well, it's the teachings of the Buddha, or it's a or, or teachings of a Buddha, of an awakened an awakened consciousness. You know, sees and knows and communicates Dharma. And then there's like, you know, there's like the traditional Dharma, like 
all these particular, you know, the interlocking lists and models. And, you know, you got to keep in mind the foundations and the factors and the you know, of enlightenment and the, you know, the Brahma, four Brahma Viharas and the, you know, like the three types of craving and the, and it's like all this stuff when you put it all together, that's like the Dharma. Um, so, I mean, would it be kind of fair to kind of say, um, that it's a, it refers to a certain cultivation of selfhood, like a certain type of subjectivity um, through Buddhist practices and teachings that you think has something to offer the kind of crises that we, you know, the world finds itself in today. Um, yes and no, um, because I think subjective is too limited, um, you know, because it's also intersubjective. Okay, but and even, I mean, in the realm yeah. of human as we know it, like, so I see what you mean. Subjectivity has definitely got a kind of individualistic feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like a human, a, hu- a human making, you know, a form of being human. Yeah, um, sure. But that is and- in service of, you know, very concrete political and social issues that we face today. I mean, yeah. obviously, obviously, because, you know, the week assumes a lot. So would, what about the kind of... I'm just I'm just gonna like like mess you up even more by saying, well, what about like the idea of you know Buddhism as kind of world tra- you know samsara kind of transcendent samsara? Like, is that you know is that part of the meta meta dharma picture, or is that being kind of abandoned? Yeah, I mean, it, to me, like the you know the Tibet the Tibetans already have a meta model around this, um, you know, where they talk about their three turnings. Yeah. Um, first turning being, you know, um, the teachings on personal liberation and arhatship and, you know, transcending samsara and, and, you know, going into paranirvana. Um, but then the Mahayana revolution really flipped the script on that and changed, you know, Nagarjuna and, and those theorists like didn't look at emptiness in those terms anymore. They looked at it as interdependence. And compassion sort of became equivalent to wisdom in a lot of ways, and 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 so on and so on. You know, um, the third turning ch- changes things yet again, um, and kind of in a way brings back something interesting in, in Buddha, Buddha nature. Kind of highlights something interesting, like affirms something rather than just negates everything. So I. So do you for, like a fourth turn and? Yes, I think the fourth turning is an interesting way of talking about it, and and you know Wilbur Wilbur again uses he he wrote a book I think called the fourth turning, so you know it's interesting. Um, I've been coming back around to that and finding it oh. kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting you should say that because I gave a talk at the University of Winnipeg a couple of weeks ago, um, and the focus of the talk was on you know basically racial justice work and. Hmm. Um, it was, you know, ethnographic. Actually, it was a material. It was material from my book, the the fifth chapter. And one of the audience members, you know, was really, you know, basically really, you know, st- struggling to understand how how was this work Buddhist, you know, because essentially they saw it, you know, as which I think is legitimate, you know, as responding to, you know, the material, you know, rather than you know, transcending the material. So essentially like this is trying to make samsara better and we should be trying to get out of samsara, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, 
you know, it's a question that I always get, and I think it's a really interesting question, but it's a question that's hard to answer um, with like a one, you know, one sentence answer because it's- Here's my one sentence. Do you want to hear my one sentence answer? Yes. What is it? Well, it's quoting, quoting David Loy, really. Uh, you know, his, his one sentence answer is form, form is emptiness. Emptiness is evolving. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's a good, that is a good one sentence answer. Although I don't think it's David Loy, is it? I think it's from the Heart Sutra. I'm just teasing. I know he's quoting that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> from, it's from, it's from the new Heart Sutra. Well, yes. I mean, it's basically a, it's a, it's a hermeneutics of the Heart Sutra, right? It's a it is. new hermeneutics. Yeah, well, it's recognizing that you know there's stuff about the nature of form that we under that we, you know the way that we understand form in contemporary terms is different than how it was understood in yeah tra- exactly you know, traditional Buddhist culture. You know, if you look at I don't know if you're familiar with the Way of Tenderness. It's a, a brilliant book by Zen Yu Earthling Manuel, who's done you know so much great work on uh, racial justice in the Zen. I don't even actually know if you would like to call it racial justice because. Uh, Manuel sees it as an inherent part of awakening, you know, so she, I'm actually not sure what pronoun Manuel uses, but Manuel basically sees, she uses, I'll keep on deferring to the she pronoun, sorry. Um, Manuel uses the relative and the absolute to frame, you know, her, their book or her book, The Way of Tenderness. Um, And I think that's really common, you know, it's a really common move that's happening now. Um, but it is, you know, it is, it is a new move, you know, it doesn't necessarily find, you know, precedent in how, you know, those uh, doctrines were, were understood, you know, in, in, in classical Buddhism. In the early Buddhist yeah. traditions. I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree. I say even in, you know, the later Buddhist tenets, there is, you know, of course, you know, the, the kind of replacement, you know, again, in quotation marks of the Bodhisattva with the Arhat and yeah. So this it's a kind of wrestling in a way it's a kind of ethical wrestling with you know what what some scholars you know think the mahayana we don't scholars don't know the exact reasons why the mahayana arose but one of the you know theories and arguments is that it was a kind of ethical um it was a kind of an ethical res- complete critique of the individualism of Buddhism yes. of the arhat right so the yeah. way in which it's kind of responding more to the cries of the world and that, be, you know, that's, you know, becomes a kind of really dominant motif with the bodhisattvas. Um, but it's still all happening, I think, within this strong framework of renunciation and transcendent samsara, right? And I think that that, you know, there has been a real shift in contemporary Buddhism, but just to get back to the you know to the original point about you saying the fourth turn and but what I find when someone asks that question is it's never really asked it's it's rarely asked as a as a question that's really interesting you know this quite big significant shift in you know in Buddhist kind of thought and hermeneutics it's nearly always asked with an agenda so the agenda is you know normally always to deep I've found that agenda is often to delegitimate, you know, the kind of worldly turn, the engaged Buddhist term. So, you know, when I respond, I respond knowing that I don't want to delegitimate it because I think that, you know, Buddhist theology, for, for want of a better word, Buddhology, you know, is a living thing and that if communities of Buddhists are, 
you know, forging this different way to understand the relation of form and emptiness. Yes. Who am I to say that's not Buddhist? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and you know, but I also think on the other hand, you know, I think it is the job of a scholar um, to point out, you know, historical inconsistencies. And so I obviously, you know, I'm kind of progressive. I'm, I'm a progress. I probably would identify as a progressive in terms of, you know, politically. And so I'm very sympathetic, you know, towards progressive Buddhism. I, you know, I find it quite inspiring. Um, but I, I think my complaint, my only kind of complaint as a scholar against progressive Buddhists or engaged Buddhists is that I think often they don't wrestle enough with, you know, the tensions between their progressive readings and some of the dominant canonical readings of Buddhism, right? So I think it's important to I think it's important to think about both continuities, you know, like you've really expressed the continuity, like thinking of it as a fourth turn, you know, you've situated it as the kind of latest expression of this movement throughout Buddhist tradition. So I would just like to, you know, to round that kind of off, I would like to say, but we also, I think it's also important to recognize discontinuities. Now, if you'd started off, I think, you know, say if you'd been like, if you'd emphasize the discontinuities, I would be like, yeah, Vince, but, you know, let's also think of Buddhism as a lived tradition, you know. Yeah. Think of- well, I think that's the trap of the pluralistic way of thinking, what, what? that it's always has to point out the other side. Oh, I must be a pluralist then. Well, I think- <laughs> I'm not saying you're a pluralist. I'm just saying that type of thinking for me, it, well, it's me- got a, an agenda itself, which know. is to try to point out what's always what's missing. No, but I think that, like, I mean, I do think that it is really important to think, like, I, I, I think it's, I do think there's some value in thinking about, in maintaining Buddhism as, yes, I agree, Buddhism as a distinct, as a distinct system that isn't necessarily fully assimilative to progressive politics. Oh, I agree. You know and I, mean? and so and to- I, I think, like, for me, the interesting interesting part is a, is a grappling with both the continuity and the discontinuity so if i don't yes. if that makes me a pluralist i guess i'm just a pluralist <laughs> I, I i wasn't claiming you're pluralist just that that <laughs> line of thinking was I think this, um yeah, anyway so like what do you think about the discontinuities you know? well i mean to me even the the idea of one two three four to get from one to two you have to have a discontinuity yeah Right. To get from two to three, there's a discontinuity. From three to four, there's another discontinuity. And yet there's a continuity in the sequencing. Yeah. So to me, it's a simultaneously continuous, continuous and discontinuous. Yeah. But one and, and it, yeah. And in the and in the fourth turning, you know, the idea, and I think you point to this really beautifully, is like we're we're wrestling with both conserving and adapting, retrieving and constructing new forms. And and in order to do that work, to actually be par- par- part of a continuous process, we have to acknowledge that there is something useful to be uh, mined or retrieved from the past and from those canonical sources. And so we have to relate to them if we're actually part of this continuous lineage. So we can't discount them. Yeah. Well, I also, I mean, just to kind of play the devil's advocate while I'm on the pluralist role, <laughs> like what if those sources really disrupt what we want to 
what our priorities are. I love disruption. But like, but I mean, like really disrupt, like, like, I don't mean just like, you know, I mean, in a way that. Can you give an example? Like, for example, in a way that, that would make meta dharma redundant. Like, what if, you know, like, I think that difference is okay in small, in small doses, right? But what if, like, does, does, I mean, I've got no answers. I've just been thinking about this. Like, does, Mm. you know, does the claim, like, I, because I, you know, there's, there's a, there's a part of me that really loves this kind of collective, you know, liberation that's kind of appeared in, you know, in, in, in contemporary Buddhism and, you know, with roots and engaged Buddhism in Asia. Um, and you know, there's also a, I'm in the diamond approach. It's another kind of spiritual group and something similar is happening in our, in our, you know, in our school, Yes, you know, it's, it's very similar to kind of analogous process. Yes. Part of me that just, you know, really loves it and I'm like with it. And I think it's like, part of me is like, wow, this is like the, you know, Reverend Angel Kyoto talks about, um, you know, this is a collective expression of the tradition. It's like the tradition fully flowering in a certain way. But then part of me is like, you know, what if this isn't, what if this isn't really um, integratable for, for want of a better word? You know, maybe the, you know, the ontologically true is not compatible with like our vision of, you know, ethics and human flourishing. Like maybe there is a kind of tension between, you know, renouncing the world, like mystical paths that are really, you know, about world renunciation and, you know, basically humanistic, different, all, you know, different varieties, but essentially humanistic ethics, you know, and maybe they can't be reconciled, you know? So I think. Well, talk talk to me more about the ontologically true. What do you mean by that? I mean, I I mean, I know what ontology is, but like, like, imagine if I'm going to do like a thought experiment, but Mm -hmm. Imagine if we had, you know, a religious, you know, experience, you know, where we saw that samsara was just inherently unworkable, you know, that it was just in the nature of the world, you know, was, you know, inherently suffering. It was inherently dukkha and yeah, sure. Ultimate goal of reality is actually as it's, you know, as it's articulated in the Buddhist text and sure, you know, express compassion along the way but never lose sight of transcending the world right what if that was true like how true in what sense like ontologically true like that was the ultimate nature of reality well hold on now i thought you were a postmodernist. <laughs> no I, how, how, I, how are you going to defend an ontological truth just, here hold on experiment <laughs> i mean i'm just saying that like well i think i think you have to have a modern premise and assumption to sit to even ask that oh, question that can be questioned i just think i guess what i'm pointing to is you know is metadharma like if metadharma metadharma as a fourth turn in like it's a way to you know fit it in with the continuity and the discontinuity of the tradition but what if it's like I, I do think there's something distinct that's happening in this fourth tradition that there are massive differences obviously between Theravada Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism but I think mm-hmm. they do you know they do still share this strong commitment to you know samsara karma and you know renunciation 
in a Ooh, way I don't that, think that's true. You know, but in a way that I think is being disrupted by the fourth turn. And, Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you know, I think maybe it, mm-hmm. I'm just, I mean, I'm, I, I think it's really interesting that you're, I think it's really interesting that you're making a, a case for that. And well, I, I'm kind of, I mean, I like it. Yeah. I'm kind of, I guess I'm just kind of like, you don't want to leave that behind. Is that what you're saying? Like, we don't want to just, just presume that that's, I just think that not valuable. I just, I, I've just, I mean, I think it just related to, you know, where I'm at around, I want to integrate all of these different worldviews, right? But what if, you know, they are not integratable? What if there's a kind of fundamental difference here between, you know, I, I'm, I'm using these te- the terms I'm using really kind of generalized and coarsely, but, you know, making the world a just place, you know, responding, you know, in these metadharma fluid ways or engaged Buddhist ways, and they renunciate path as, you know, traditionally articulated in Asian kind of contemplative kind of traditions. Like there's an assumption in, you know, the fourth, what we're calling here, the fourth turn and that they are integratable. And I just find I'm kind of, you know, talking kind of personally as well as a scholar. I find that I am both that there is a part of me that really loves that kind of rhetoric and that kind of move. But there's also another part of me that is you know, that I do see that there are these, you know, really, there are these massive points of conflict that, you know, I wonder if they are integratable, you know, and that I think maybe, you know, just being honest and saying, well, you know, they're not, they don't cohere, but, you know, I'm going to just make them cohere. Or I'm just going to do it anyway, type of thing. You know, that I'm going to privilege responding to human suffering more than you know a mystical renunciation more than freedom from suffering yeah i mean i guess you know actually jeff kripal who i mentioned before he's got this amazing i think it's an amazing essay called the mystical is not the ethical and when i read that article it was one of the reasons i went to study with him but he really he basically argues that you know he he looks at mysticism in the hindu context the mostly advaita and tantric in you know strands of hinduism and he basically argues that they are not um they are not coherent with humanistic ethics like there's a way in which humanistic concerns be them individual humanistic ethics or collective ethics are erased ultimately in in those systems um so I've, and I've yeah. always found that really fascinating, you know. So, sure. I mean, sure. Yeah. So anyway, so it's a just a really ongoing, interesting debate for me, yeah. my own kind of head. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting a bit manic here. My hair's like sticking open. Yeah. Well, you know, you talked about some like having a small amount of difference is a is a good thing. Um, you know. I'm just, this is reminding me of a, a training that I went to recently, um, which was gifted to me by a student and friend um, with Diane Hamilton, um, who's a facilitator and Zen teacher. I know Diane. Yeah. And we, the whole frame of her integral facilitator training is um, sameness and difference. That's the core mm. frame that she uses to, to explore all the different practices and facilitation techniques and the basic idea uh, as a facilitator in that method is to become aware of when there's more difference going on and when there's sameness and and what that feels like and how to recognize. Like right now I feel 
on edge and I feel warmth and heat and I feel argumentative. So I'm, I'm recognizing that there's a lot of difference. But for a moment, if we just stopped and kind of reconnected with the things that we share in common, you know, like our love of these questions yeah. or our mutual respect for each other, um, my appreciation for being willing to have this conversation with you. Yeah, no, and I mean, I... And I start to feel the sameness uh, as well. Yeah, you kind of feel, is it feels a bit kind of regulating to kind of... Yeah, yeah. right. And I, I, I like... I like that as a as a tool because it's like okay, if it gets too much on the different side, we splinter apart and fragment. And if it gets too much on the sameness part, we just all kind of agree with each other, and it gets like totally boring. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's just. I mean, I guess I, I I'm now really kind of taken to heart. I must be a pluralist because you know it's kind of funny because normally I'm the person who's having who's arguing on the other side, right, that I'm arguing for, you know, engaged Buddhists, fourth turnings as, you know, legitimate and an extension of the tradition. And I'd actually, you know, replied to that uh, person in the talk. I said, you know, maybe in, you know, 100 years, you know, we'll be talking about this as a fourth turn, you know. Um, yeah, you know, and I don't know if what I have in mind is fourth terming is the same as what you're talking about. That might be part of the issue because I don't, I don't necessarily see that in the engaged Buddhist world. What I what I'm thinking oh, of, right? Well, per se, except for with maybe some people like David Loy, perhaps. Um, yeah. So maybe we're talking past each other a little bit here too. Yeah, or have different conceptions in mind. Yeah, and it's kind of you know hard because we're using like quite broad categories, aren't we? Yeah. We're high up the level of uh, the ladder of abstraction. But I think that one of the things that we had also mentioned talking about was the issue of yes. identity in Buddhism. Yes. So this might be a really good kind of subject. Yes. This is great. Be yeah, because you, part of what you said is, I mean, is this accurate? Let me ask you the question. Is this accurate? Did did you, where we're talking about pluralism and I sort of said, well, that's a pluralistic blah, blah, blah. Did, was that a moment in which you felt kind of a need to defend your identity? And did you feel like I was attacking you or, or putting an identity on you that wasn't accurate? I felt, um, I mean, I, I, I'm okay to be a pluralist, but I think I, I did, I, I guess I felt a little bit misunderstood in terms uh -huh. of, I just, I, I, I guess I wanted you to like have more <laughs> appreciation of mm. what I think is the complexity of, you know, take essentially taking these, you know, renunciate traditions and you know adapting them to respond to you know the very material and immediate concerns of our world today you know i mean I, i'm not saying that you can't do it i mean i think you sh i mean people are doing it and i think it's great to use all of these different resources but i do yeah. I think it, I, and you know it kind of relates in a way to like you know i think as like scholars and also a lot you know as kind of people interested in questions of religion and, and spirituality, you know, you, I think we often, I've found that people often have, you know, long-standing questions that they kind of live and think through. And so yes. I think for me, you know, I've always been really interested in the question, the basic question of what is the relationship of, you know, the historic self, you know, like me as Angleg, you know, working class, lesbian, you know, yada yada to you know these you know states in which the personal self 
and and the world itself seem completely like absent and irrelevant you know like completely yes you know so that's kind of what i was saying with like you know a kind of non-dual like ontological vision of the world in which there are no selves like selves and the world don't exist you know yeah yes i mean so i've always been really interested in thinking across you know those two experiences of you know self and reality and i think that i've really been driven you know, by a desire to make those two experiences cohere, you know, to integrate those two experiences. Yeah. But of late, you know, I've just been, you know, thinking like maybe, you know, maybe, you know, they can't cohere, you know, and, and some of it is a kind of, you know, response. I was at a conference in Harvard um, and I gave a presentation on this kind of social, you know, the collective turn in the diamond approach and, and after I'd given the paper, Mark Jordan, who is an amazing uh, theologian and queer, he's a, done amazing work in queer theology, he's kind of giant in queer theology. He's also a Catholic theologian. You know, he basically said to me, you know, similar, he kind of reflected to me, you know, that there was an assumption that these two worlds and value systems could be integrated and that he didn't actually think they could. And it, it really just, it really impacted me, you know. So, so I think that, you know, that's kind of where I'm, where I'm kind of pushing, like, can we integrate the world and, you know, the imper- impersonal mysticism would be enough. Yeah. Well, okay. So yeah, I, I hear you on that. I do. Um, I, I mean, I feel part of where I try to resolve that question is in my practice. Um, I mean, among other places and I've, like when I look back at the arc of my own practice and my current story about it, I think that was a really, really central, like I really wanted to transcend the world and my suffering, especially in the beginning years of my practice. Like that was a really strong goal. And I see that for a lot of people that they have that as a goal. I think it seems to skew toward young men in particular, really have that as their goal. Um, I've noticed but um, I've noticed too that not not everyone frames their spiritual life in those terms. That there are other f- ways of understanding the purpose of of mystical experience. Oh yeah. Um, and and to me, I I resonate much more now with the ones that see you know whatever is being, whatever that we're, whatever kind of freedom that we're finding from dukkha and 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 the world and the, and the inherent tension of not knowing and uncertainty and our limited perspective on things um and having a human body being in an ecosystem where everything's contingent um that that freedom from by itself if if that's all that people do they they seem to become averse to the world and they often like from a psychological perspective they're dissociated from their own pain and traumas and wounds and they use that spiritual truth to kind of hide out yeah. and away from the world and i think that's like the main that's the devastating critique of that of that kind of transcending spirituality in 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 like contemporary times and i 
you know, yeah. I've, I've, and I've done that. Like I've done that a lot. So that's how I feel. Yeah. But for me that they resolve where they resolve is in the awakened heart. And they resolve in the capacity to feel, um, to infinity, you know, to really deeply feel other people's suffering as our own, you know, like that we share somehow we share in it. Like at the one, on the one hand, I don't have the same identities that you do. So I don't know what your suffering is like or what your life is like. But on the other hand, I do know what, what it's like to suffer and that suffering is universal. So I can touch into the universal quality and nature of suffering and feel also this universal or, or this quality of transcendent compassion, you know, that it's like, oh my gosh, you're suffering. We're suffering. Like everyone is, everyone is in the same boat to one degree or another. I mean, obviously there's different degrees and different types and different causes, but I find that that, that resolves things for me on a personal level. Um, the, the compassionate heart resolves it um, in, in a way that it's not a problem anymore. Yeah, well, I think I, I appreciate you sharing that. I can, you know, tell it's come from a, um, you know, a deep place and just wanted to kind of reflect that. Um, I think, you know, kind of two things. One is I 100% agree with you. I mean, you, you essentially named, you know, the phenomena of spiritual bypassing. Um, that is, you know, I think being a really kind of predominant dynamic in, in certain populations and especially as you, as you yourself say, kind of young males. Um, and I think, you know, for me, that was actually why I joined the diamond approach. Yes. Because because it kind of had that, it really took that on, you know, it took the, it took right. the spiritual bypass and said, well, we use psychoanalytic theory to kind of prevent, you know, to work through more sophisticated um, ways to work, work through psychodynamics and spiritual states um, and even before then you know it's kind of interesting but the other thing is is it's I also want to say for you know to make sure for listeners there are many different forms of mysticism and I yes you know there are definitely forms of mysticism that embrace the world more you know yeah like na like nature's mysticism yeah, or like shamanic forms mysticism. of mysticism nature mm -hmm. mysticism I would say you know, mm -hmm. Christian liberation tradition. Right. No. And I think in a way that just what's been really, like I'm really drawn to liberation theology and, you know, the Christ, the suffering Christ. But I've had this really kind of unfortunate, in a way, a really unfortunate experience that has been a struggle for me that my religious and spiritual right. life has been always been very like, you know, non-dual impersonal. So if I was just approaching mysticism as a regular, you know, in my regular human personality, like there's plenty of forms of mysticism for me to be drawn to that I think, you know, do reconcile the concerns of the world and the concerns of the mystic more. But my experience was such that the earliest, even though I grew up Catholic, you know, my earliest experiences of, you know, what I, you know, experience, would call mystical experiences, again, in quotations, were very like you know non-dual and you know ba basically more like what you'd find in a kind of Advaita Vedanta or Neo Advaita kind of world. So that was you know that's kind of where I came from, and then I found the dismissal of human suffering so 
unbearable in those kind of circles. You know? Uh huh. Sure. I really found a home in Buddhism because you know essentially because Buddhism starts with suffering, right? There's acknowledgement of you know all life is dukkha, and I found that really you know helpful to have you know that centrality of keeping focus on suffering in the larger metaphysics of non-duality. Um, so, you know, I think like, yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's just been this like ongoing journey where I've just, hmm. you know, like if it was just in terms of what mysticism, you know, suits me best, I'd definitely find myself more drawn to, you know, like forms that you've mentioned and kind of, I think Christian mysticism, but unfortunately those mystical worlds haven't aligned with my own experience, you know? So it's always that's interesting. Yeah, so it's always been like, wow, I'm, I, you know, these experiences that I've had, you know, that I feel have value in. Like, how do I? I mean, you know, the other option is just to f- drop them, just you know, just forget about them, just say, you know, they were just whatever brain, you know, brain frizzles in my brain and why can't I really thought about that you know I really thought like wow if I didn't have had all those experiences when I was a teenager you know I probably just would have been a full-on you know social justice person well yeah totally Um, you know because they've had meaning to me and because they seem to have value it's like I've, I've always been as a scholar and as a human trying to relate those experiences yeah. to my concerns of what it means to be a good human amongst other humans. Yeah. You know it makes mean? a lot of sense. So I do. Yeah. I do. I, I, I would probably be a Silicon Valley computer engineer right now. Had I not. <laughs> we both. Sure. Well, you definitely. We'd, we'd be on other sides. We'd be on the opposite sides of the, uh, of the picket fence. Yeah. I'll probably be outside your office. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, that's interesting. Um, Oh, well, two things came to mind. One, one is you know to, using the term non-duality, which is a really, I mean, that's a hard term. Um, part of what came to mind is a conversation that I had with David Loy, who uh, wrote his PhD thesis was called Non-Duality. Wrote a, yeah, uh, ended up turning into a book called Non-Duality. Yeah, it's a great book. Uh, I was sitting with him one day, and I thought, I thought, I'm like, I'm with the expert on non-duality, or one of them, you know. And um, I said, David, I st- I've been starting to feel like into it that there are different types of non-duality. Like, what do you think? I posed that question to him and he said, he said, uh, there are as many types of non-dualities as there are dualities. Yeah. Cause he articulates some in that book really well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's, you know, there's like in Buddhism, we call, we say non-duality, but like non-dual non-duality of what and what, you know, there's like the non-duality of like subject object. There's the non-duality of like, um, self and other, and those are not the same, you know? Yeah, no, no, they're not. Self and there's a non-duality of self and world, non-duality of emptiness and form, um, non-duality of absolute and relative. Like, um, yeah, to me, those are like different, they point at different um, realities and different ontologies yeah. or different yeah. ontological realities that people actually have experienced and actually report. Yeah. And I think like David is someone who has, you know, it's kind of interesting that you return to him a couple of times because I think he is someone who has really, you know, he has really successfully integrated, you know, for him, you know, well, his earlier work, I don't know what, how he articulates it now, but, you know, he talks about, 
you know, he talked before about, you know, Asian traditions having these contemplative insights and the Abrahamic traditions, you know, having the, the prophetic insights and bringing the kind of prof- prophetic, the social justice, you know, together with the contemplative, you know, as part of his engaged Buddhism. Um, and you, you know, you, you quoted his, you know, his use of the, the Heart Sutra of form of emptiness and emptiness as form. Like, I think he's someone who is in his personal and professional life has, has really integrated, you know, those two, um, those two different strands. Um, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm just not, you know, I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm just not there. I think I'm still in the, I'm still in the struggle, you know? Yeah. Which, makes you sense. Know, yeah, makes. Although you sound more kind of chill than me. I, I <laughs> Well, I mean, I I don't know if I'm more chill, but I I guess I've just had so many different kinds of mystical experiences that I'm like I don't know because, um, you know, for for me the I'll be the pluralist here. <laughs> like I've had such a plurality of mystical experiences. Like I'll give an example. This one really took me for a loop. I was out uh, doing a sort sort of self retreat with a couple friends. And I had a full-blown mystical experience of Allah, of the you know the form of God in the Sufi, you know, in the in the uh, in the Muslim tradition, and it was so clear and so obvious and so unexpected. And it came after talking to my Palestinian grandfather about his some of his traumas and pains and some of the, our family kind of um, traumas and pains uh, around essentially experiencing ethnic cleansing in the late forties um, and, and being pushed, you know, pushed from his home along with his whole family. And he was sharing some really gruesome details that included genocide. Yeah. You know, there were some genocide apparently that occurred in his village at least. And he shared that with me. And then I go off to this practice period, which I will also mention in, may have included a psychedelic substance and meditation. And suddenly I was on the, my body was on the floor. My forehead was on the ground in a prayer position, which I'd never been in before. And I was having these very deep experience of being in the presence of God, but this very particular God that I could felt like I could surrender everything to all of this pain and all of this, trauma and all of this heartbreak that somehow I could give it all over to this. And it was like really powerful and just came out of nowhere because I'd never had that I could remember a kind of mystical experience that included God. And so that just was like, okay, well, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I want to, thank you for sharing that with me and i as soon as you mentioned you know you'd had a vision of allah my mind went to your grandfather because i I know that you told me a little about him and and that lineage you know before and kind of working work i know you've been working a lot on on that lineage kind of yes um and yeah so um, you know i want to just kind of thank you for sharing that um i also wanted to tell you that i have a colleague in at ucf and his name is Michael Muhammad Knight, and he is a he's a convert uh, to, to Islam. But he's he's written some he just his scholarships really interesting and provocative. But he wrote a book called uh, "Tripping with Allah," 
Um, oh, wow. I got to check that out. Thank you. You know, I think his work would be of great interest to you. Um, when you share. Yeah, the, yes, it does. Yeah, and no, I'll send you the link to his faculty page. He's, he's a really kind of rock star. He's amazing and a personal friend. Um, um, but I, I also, you know, when you were talking about, you know, the di like different forms of non-duality and, and sharing this particular experience of, you know, a personal God as a first experience, um, I was thinking about, made me think of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jorge Farrar's work. Jorge Farrar, a little bit. Um, him and Jacob Sherman edited a collection called The Participatory Turn. And they look at, I think, because in some ways I think it's hard to talk about mystic modern mysticism without falling into perennialism. Um, you know, like there's, there is a, I'm not sure how familiar you are, but there's a big debate around like, are mystical experiences all the same or are yes. they entirely different? You know, Stephen Katz. So it's a kind of contextualist versus perennialist perspective. And Jorge Farrar, um, you know, I, I think he's like him and Jake Sherman, I think offer like a model that kind of, it, 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 it incorporates and is open to the experience of culture, the contextual sensibility in shape and mystical experiences. So surely mm -hmm. there was no, you know, it's not a coincidence that you had that experience and your grandfather is from Palestine, right? I mean, it's clearly intimately right. linked. And that we've just been talking about, you know, yeah. these issues. But, but he also holds a space for ontology and like the plurality of ontological worlds. And so I think as someone, you know, because you, you mentioned before that you're doing this practice, in a way, a lot of also with the modern and the postmodern, a lot of the questions are around like how to make sense of difference and sameness, like how yes. to respect both. You know, some yes. people, you know, have been really sameness has rendered a massive violence on populations. Yes. Difference is also rendering violence. Yes. So it's like how to mediate between, you know, mm -hmm. two things, um, you know, and in a way it's like, you know, it's an ongoing struggle. In, but I think that there are like these models that kind of help. And I think ontologically, you know, that that, that, that book, I'd, I'd recommend it if you, if you haven't like looked at it. Because um, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I think I'm not a materialist, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a materialist. Um, Me neither. But I think that, like, as you point out, you know, there is so much tremendous bypassing in contemporary spirituality, both psychological bypassing and so social and cultural bypassing. So I think that, like, you know, the kind of racial justice work, for example, that's happening now, you know, I really see that as a kind of extension of, you know, John Wellwood. Well, he's just, you know, famous for coining the phrase, you know, the spiritual bypass. So yeah. it's like bringing in, you know, socio-cultural insights into these, you know, traditions specifically here. We're talking about Buddhism, you know, is it's just, you know, it's just such a rich and, and now like it's happening in real time. Um, but I sometimes wonder like, you know, well, I guess that's why I asked you like, what is the role of Dharma in why meta Dharma? Why not just meta modern, you know? And so I think that's something that I'm, I'm always asking as well. Like what yeah. does the mystical or the spiritual or the religious add? Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? That's really interesting yes. to me. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. And I, I mean, I, I found myself surprisingly at the at, at the same time as turning toward what I, what I would think of now as like sort of meta perspective, also turning toward Dharma, and coming back from you know from the dead, uh, letting go of Buddhist Buddhism, and finding that even when I let go of Buddhism, I still was practicing within Buddhist Dharmic traditions. And also learning, you know, the Dharma of psychedelics and the Dharma of indigenous communities and the Dharma of my ancestral heritage, like those things also became really important strands. And it, you know, it, it really became, I think, even more clear to me letting go of the whole superstructure of Buddhism, but still in finding that I was engaging with it uh, and finding tremendous value in it, particularly in the somatic lineages of it that there does feel like there's something perennial or a kind of ultimateness to these dharmic traditions and i think dharma as a word is captures that better than buddhism in part because we already recognize there are multiple dharmas from india you know there's not just one dharma there's not just buddhist dharma there's hindu dharma and there's jainist dharma and you know it's already a term that kind of has that perennial quality to it so i just found myself falling in love with that term even though i used to hate it when people used when my buddhist teachers used the word dharma i thought they were just it was just this like religious term that they used to count for everything that they thought you know was good and and it just annoyed the crap out of me yeah i i'm also seeing you know dharma kind of appear in 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 contexts in different contexts um like the dharma of you know indigenous wisdom and i think there's um what's the name um there is there's a spring washam yeah spring washam and also there's a couple i can't believe i've forgotten their names one of them's actually british um and we we kind of have a bond of being British. Uh, I think it's Thanassara. Thanassara. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Thanassara was, I, I just kind of draw attention to her work and her, her husband's whose name I've forgotten, but um, she was a monk. They were both, her and her husband were monks in the Ajahn Charlie. She was a novice nun and he was a uh, a monk. And um, they, you know, they, they knew each other through, I think, being in the Ajahn Chah lineage and then they left you know they left the Thai forest tradition and they uh left monastic life and they got married and they had a they still have a dharma center in South Africa although they've recently moved to the states and I think yeah I think they're doing you know just some like really incredibly interesting work on interweaving you know indigenous traditions with you know with with Buddhist dharma traditions um However, um, I guess, you know, this is a little of a, a harder question. I hope you don't mind me asking. Um, no, I figured we were going to go here. Yeah, so I mean, how, like, <laughs> how, you know, what way, you know, the what ways that that can be, what do you think there's ways that can be done skillfully that aren't, you know, culturally appro- appropriating and, you know, erasing of indigenous communities, which, you know, remain so vulnerable, you know, in, at this, you know, indigenous communities are really, you know, suffering a lot of vulnerabilities. Um, and I think with Thanassara, um, you know, she she and her husband and her community just seem very, I don't know, I guess they're just really grounded in the communities themselves. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, one of the issues 
I mean, the split between Buddha, Buddhism and Dharma is so complicated because it happens on so many levels. You know, it happens, you know, monastics. I've heard monastics use, you know, distinguish between Buddhism and Dharma in a traditionalist context. Yeah. Secular Buddhists distinguish and, you know, there's yep. been a lot of racial critiques I'm sure that you're aware of. So I'm curious as how you, like, how do you, how do you kind of, you know, negotiate that as a, I know your your history is a little complex, but I think, you, you know, you, most people read you as a white guy, right? Yes. As or in, uh, in the terminology I've become familiar with, I present as a white, as a white man. Yeah. You present yeah. as a white guy. So <laughs> how, how have you like negotiated, you know, those debates and concerns? Um, yeah. I mean, I think they're valid concerns. Um, and the way I've negotiated them on the Buddhist side is I've, you know, acknowledged for myself that, that whatever connection I had with that tradition um, when I was first exposed to it, which was very much, you know, heartfelt, you know, and deep and profound and surprising is, you know, that it's possible for people who present one way to the world to have an inner experience of something that's very different. And that's a challenge. That's something as a challenge I've lived in for a long time, you know, being a mixed race, Palestinian, growing up in the Southern Baptist South, <laughs> um, you know, very much felt like an outsider there. And then I moved to Naropa and I went to Boulder and, you know, and suddenly I was being told I should feel guilty for my whiteness. And for me that, you know, the, I didn't completely understand why, and I still don't, to be honest, um, because of my because I had I think experienced real difference in in that terms in terms of that aspect of my identity, and I re- could really relate in a much deeper way than most people can with you know having seen my some of my very close family members be systematically. Um, targeted after 9-11 yeah. and watching my grandfather and his brothers and my other family members who present as Arab because a lot of them do um, seeing them being held up in airports for several hours at a time and being really mistreated and targeted by the IRS and all kinds of crazy shit um, you know that I, I really think there's an yeah there's another aspect to this and 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 it's the same I, I approach it in a similar way with these contemplative traditions which is you know the heart wants sometimes what the heart wants or there's some part of us that needs something somewhere and needs to learn and if if that's the case i think we, we have to talk about that as being a valid perspective as well and that's how i felt entering the buddhist tradition and i felt that the teachers i trained with um jack cornfield and others who who had all themselves trained with other eastern you know asian teachers who freely offered the dharma to you know their understanding to those people that this was a this was a um a genuine open-hearted generous offering of cultural material and profound perennial practices and i am so grateful for that so part of how i respond to it is with gratitude um and appreciation and and psychedelics are a little bit more complicated but i don't think they're that much different 
because a lot of the people that I hang out with and I learn from, they are serious practitioners uh, of uh, and are working directly with indigenous teachers who are in the same way offering their lineages freely in ways that I think are ethical and considerate of some of these larger issues. So I don't feel, I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a challenge and an issue and something to, I, I, I like to, I, I really want to consider. And I see a lot of examples of people doing it in a way that's like not, um, that's problematic. Um, it's like just, just incorporating these things into their identity and feeling good because they went to an ayahuasca ceremony or something like that. So I don't know. That's kind of how I, yeah. part of, partly how I relate to it is that, you know, it's like how people appear from the outside. We can't reduce everything to that. And I think there's way too much of that happening right now. And it's pretty ironic considering the roots of these, you know, these social justice movements, you know, and how, like, at least when I remember growing up, you know, learning about, um, understanding that not everyone is like you and you can't just look at them and know their, their lived experience. You can't just see, you know, a color and be like, Oh, that person is like this, that that was actually the root of, of learning about tolerance and uh, appreciating difference was that we can't, we can't take someone's external appearance or preconceptions about them based on that and immediately assume that those line up with their experience. That to me is like that it's, it's a weird turn where suddenly the, you know, the social justice left is often many people are using that same logic to hammer home, I think, important points about whiteness and privilege and gender. Um, and so sometimes I feel defensive about that because I just don't feel like it lines up with my experience um, and that there's more nuance and complexity. Yeah, it sounds like you're interested in the work, but the the ex the expressions of of the work have been how you've encountered expressions of that work the need for that work have been painful and kind of off-putting is that kind of right like, yeah you when you say that work meaning like meaning like so, cultural appropriation yeah, yeah culture like thinking about you know you know, gratitude and obligations to indigenous cultures or to Asian Buddhists, um, as the, you know, given the gift of Dharma and what the right, you know, what the response should be towards the gift of Dharma, you know, not taking it for granted, acknowledging the teaching, acknowledging its source, yeah. the sources well, and, and, and acknowledging it as a gift, you know, as a gift, yeah. a host kind of culture. Yeah. And I think it, but also, you know, yes. it also sounds that, you know, I just, because I'm, you know, working on racial justice in Buddhism and I have a lot of conversations with, you know, white Buddhists and I find that it's, it, it's nearly always, we never really get to talking about white privilege because, or, you know, the complexities of white privilege in, in, in relationship to Buddhism and how, you know, Buddhist teachings can be used both to, you know, reify race racism and to kind of challenge, you know, racism. Um, because often it's just, you know, I can't, you know, from a lot of white Buddhists, you know, it's like, I can't handle social justice warriors. You know, it, it's more like, there's no real movement, you know, it's just really like very, like two bricks hitting each other. 
Um, yeah. And that really is a huge shame, you know, because I found, you know, you know, as you kind of pointed to, that racial justice work in Buddhism is offering a gift of unpacking our identity and seeing our own, you know, you know, seeing like white identity is reified in a way that perpetuates a system of racism. But when you unpack, you know, white identity, you know, you see it as it has actually been constructed. You know, there are certain groups that weren't considered white and then they become allowed into whiteness. Like 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 the Jewish people. Yeah. And also, you know, like class, you know, there's like the ways in which, you know, lower classes were kind of ter- you know, were were manipulated against people of colour rather than, you know, feel resentful at the elite classes. You know, so you can unpack whiteness in a way that's, I think, extremely powerful um, and, you know, liber- can be really liberatory for, for, you know, for white people to be freed from whiteness as well. I mean, whiteness isn't, I think of whiteness as, you know, I, f- I feel like we're all imprisoned by it. You know, you're imprisoned by the assumption that because you present as a white, you know, as a white person. Um, but it's kind of, it seems that, you know, many Buddhists, you know, can't get, it just seems somehow that the way that there's, there's just a kind of, uh, there's a defensiveness and maybe, you know, sure. appropriate in times that there is an attack that just n- people don't ever get beyond that. You know, they just kind of shut down to yeah, that word, I, I, you know. And I think that you're yep. someone who can really offer a lot because you you kind of straddle two worlds in a way. You know, you you have this like intimate uh, experience of you know marginalization through you know your grandfather and um, your childhood growing up in a Christian centric kind of world, but you also I think present in a very kind of safe in a way for you know white Buddhists and mm-hmm. I don't know I kind of I guess I I just hope that your sharing of your unpacking of your Hmm. identity and cultural identity and how it seems it's been really impactful for you in your own practice, you know, it has, it has been. Um, And so I think that's a gift for everyone. I think that's a gift for white practitioners as well, you know, as part of their practice. Um, But yeah, you're right. The kind of expression of the debate can be so, you know, kind of polemic and painful that a lot of people can't get beyond, beyond. Yeah. And it, it's sad when that happens because it seems like like people double down on their identities instead of open up um, and start to get curious. And I, I've definitely felt that um, tendency, you know, to like want to double down and be like, you know, to dig in. Yeah. Um, but I haven't, I, and I have done that at times, but I also feel like I, I keep having to, you know, keep needing to return back to the questions because it's like, I can't get rid of my Arabic <laughs> ancestors and family members. And I, you know, it's like, I just, I, you know, but a lot of people don't have that. And so it's, it's true. Like they don't, they don't have that tether um, to the other perspective. And I, I've seen this um, with a lot of my white male friends in particular over the last few years that are very typically like have spiritual practices, deep sensitivity, openness, psychological maturity, uh, progressive, uh, attitudes. I've seen so many of them dig in and I'm like, if they're digging in, I can't even I imagine know, right? I, the people, the guys that I grew up with, you know, in the South. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you said that. Cause I often think the same. It's like, if, 
you know, if they're doing it, what about, yeah, the kind of, and, and you know, some of the kind of working class people I grew up with who, yeah. But I think that some of it is a lot of the debate seems to be happening like on an abstract level. A lot of it seems to be happening online. Yes, that's right. You know, the relational component is missing, you know, on Facebook. Yep. Yeah. And it's also, I just, I just, yeah, I just feel like, you know, have you got any black friends? Have you got any Muslim friends? Like, like just, can you open up to, you know, these stories of, you know, suffering, you know, and it, for me, that's just had like such a profoundly you know, mm-hmm. transformational impact. Yeah. You know? But it's, mm-hmm. and yeah, but I guess, yeah, I don't know. I think there is such a defense against it. And I've also found it also interesting that a lot of people who are like, you know, seem to be uh, enthusiastic, for example, about incorporating psych- psychology into Buddhism, but they don't like incorporating social you know, cultural theory. So that's why I'm always, you know, kind of pushing the, oh, it's it's actually an extension of, you know, the spiritual bypass. It's another component of self to unpack. Um, Yes. You know, that's a really good way in. So I don't know. I always, you know, I've been doing all these podcasts and I've always, you know, kind of said, like, I really, you know, encourage people to, you know, listeners who, you know, are maybe adverse to, you know, white awareness work in Buddhism or other spiritual trainings to just, you know, give it a shot. And I think they'd be surprised that, you know, I just think they'd be surprised at what they find that like, you know, unpacking whiteness is just, it's really powerful. Um, it's not, I, you know what I mean? I think it's going to open the practice up in really, you know, important ways that they, they might not, you know, otherwise get the opportunity to, to do yeah 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 no it makes sense and i i I maybe i just add that you know and this comes from the part of me that recognizes that the invitation to do that is not always an invitation sometimes it is a thinly veiled attack and that 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 isn't actually i think what this is a complex topic, but I think for people that are interested in exploring that, but feel defensive, it is important to find the right environment and the right community in which to explore that so that it is, there is a sense of um, permission and relative safety to explore these topics since they are so highly charged with difference. And since there is so much pain and right underneath the surface um, especially for those people who have been actively oppressed or yeah. who've experienced things that are very, you know, like unfathomable um, to most people that haven't yeah. experienced. Well, I think that's why, like, you know, maybe like, you know, people like, you know, me and you, Vince, like, we have the, you know, we have more like the, I, I hate to use the word because I know people have so many reactions, but. Well, I'll, I'll just talk for myself, you know, like, I feel like I have, you know, more privilege, more patience, you know, more like bandwidth to talk to white people about doing white awa- white awareness work, you know, such as the White Awake. That's just one, you know, particular 
for me. What is it called? Uh, it's called White Awake. It's uh, Eleanor Hancock. Uh, she, she she's a driving force behind it. But you know, there's different forms of white awareness work. But White Awake is is a is an organisation that's worked a lot with the inside community. Um, mm. But there's you know there's different there's different you know it, I, I guess just using like white awareness work. Um, like it's easy. Like I you know it's. I just feel like it, that it's my, you know, one of my like responsibilities, and and also actually I'll say honors now where I'm at with it to share it, you know, mm. to kind of you know, nice. deal with the other white people's defense, which I can empathize with more because I'm not dealing directly with the violence of that. Do you know what I mean? So like when you say you know veiled attacks, you know sometimes that you know often that comes from exhaustion of. I can't deal with another clueless white person. Yes. So I, yeah. I've, I've, yeah. I've, I've been on the receiving end of that. Yeah. And, and, and I think in some ways yeah, it's, too. I can understand. Yeah. And so it's like, I think, you know, and it's also related to my work in the classroom of like when, you know, as teaching undergraduates, like I have to think like, sometimes I really want to like scream at, you know, kids, you know, but obviously that wouldn't, I don't think pedagogically effective. So, it's like, well, there, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, what you know? How can like you know? How can I have this conversation in a way, you know, that you know might move this this person along, you know? And I've found, you know, with you know white men and white women, and you know that you know it, there's there's better ways of doing that. But I wouldn't expect a person of color to take that on, you know. That would be way too much labor on their behalf, you know. So I think that's why I'm like kind of, I guess in a way kind of pushing you to like, as someone who is a bridge figure, you know, I think you could have a lot of impact. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for, I mean, to be honest, it's something that I feel like I'm still so actively working in that it's hard for me to imagine supporting others through. Um, but at the same time, I feel like it is really important. Um, I'd also mention, you know, again, Diane Hamilton, uh, she has a, a really interesting program called inclusion 2.0 and and that's where she's applying some of her kind of integral facilitation stuff to um to these topics and and you know when we were at when i was at her training i, I have to say it was like one of them it was one of the most charged and difficult and brilliant places up to we explored issues around trans issues with trans and, and, you know, lesbian people in the room. And we explored the me too movement and we explored all kinds of racial issues, you know, and, and like, it was real, it was a real, there were real conversations going down and not everyone was in agreement about these things. And it, but it, but it ended, it felt like it ended on a note where it was like, there was movement, there was actually movement and opening. Um, even though there was also a lot of pain. I know. Um, so it's I, really profound and it's a really profound and beautiful teaching. I, I'm also in a group in uh, the Diamond Approach called Soul and Society. And it's it's a mixed group. Uh, there's four uh, people of color in the group and we do something separate, you know, for protection and safety. Yeah. But there's, it, it's an incredible, it's an incredible experience, but so really challenging you know sometimes just to stay in the room I mean, i'm doing it actually by zoom but just sometimes to even stay near the computer you know yeah. it's really it's really tough but just yeah incredible like incredible rewards you know yeah and and i would put i would put you know issues around gender uh be, being for me like up there with race in terms of 
like importance um, in, in looking at those those questions and issues too, and they seem so interrelated. Those different yeah facets well, of identity. I was at the Soto Zen Buddhist Association conference in November. It's a you know conference for the Soto Zen priests. I think they have it biannually. Um, and there was there was they did the theme of the conference was diversity, diversity, inclusion, and equity, and it was on racial justice and also the Me Too movement. And that was really powerful. You know, it was kind of there were there were there were you know there was two separate groups for you know for people who identified as female and male, and so they did like there was you know their own kind of work that was happening, but there was also some mixed groups, and it was it's really phenomenal like what can happen when when there's some break in the defense you know or like the it's both like a break in the it's kind of dialogical right it's like both sides you know like loosen up a little bit you know let go a little bit like let go of you know their defenses or their you know accusations I don't want to equalize them because I'm still like, you know, want to, I, I'm not there to fully, I'm not there to say I would fully equalize it as the same, but, but a different type of movement can happen that you, that is very rare that you, re, you never see online, you know, in discussions online, yeah, you rarely really yeah. see in the classroom either. Um, it is really powerful. Um, but yeah, no, I think you're right. Just having those, those spaces that are facilitated well and have that strong relational commitment is yeah it's just a very powerful te- it's a dharma to use that <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean i mean and like I th- yeah totally i mean and, and it, i mean the, i think that's one of the unique things that dharma has to offer this conversation is around you know the phenomenology of identity yeah and how it you know and really being familiar with and aware of what it it's like to be identified with something and then become aware of that identity in, you know, in sensory terms. It's like, Oh wow. And to be, and then have the experience of some kind of freedom and uh, release around a particular identity, even if it doesn't go away completely, but maybe just our, our kind of reification around it, you know, that you talked about earlier can kind of loosen and then we can look at it and work with it. And it becomes more, a little bit more fluid or a little more, Malleable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really true. So I talked earlier about Zanyu Earthland Manuel, and Manuel uh, recently wrote a piece for either Lions Raw or Tricycle. It was it was an online piece um, where they talked about um, a lot of the earlier work has been on recognizing the relative. You know, the relative difference. The the level of the relative or form is constituted by differences of race, sexuality, yes. and gender. But in class, the age, class and, and, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> um, you know, just the, your your favorite brand. <laughs> the, the embodied self. But then in this, in in their latest piece, they talked about you know touching the kind of the freedom of the absolute again. Yeah, and it was like mm-hmm. so powerful. No, and it was just like, I, just, you know, thinking about their work, the trajectory of their work, you know, it was really like moving from this, I think, you know, false kind of sense of, you know, the two truths, like relative and absolute, but, yep. you know, not really understanding them. And 
you know, using the absolute to erase the relative or the, yeah, to justify yeah, or erase. totally yep. affected to the relative and not o- opening up to the absolute. Right. And then another kind of bypassing. Yeah. And so they had, you know, but, you know, in this trajectory of work, you know, they, they'd kind of, you know, gone through the relative and come back out through the absolute. And I'm sure, you know, you know, will be an ongoing journey, you know? And so I think with like, you know, a lot of questions that I get is, you know, a lot of questions is, you know, I always get when I bring up any kind of identity work is, well, you know, Buddhism's about no self. So why are we, you know, addressing the self? Um, and I just think that's, it's such a like, you know, it's like, if you want to get to the no self, like, I really believe, you know, there has to be the movement through, you know, through the years, through these identifications. Like, I don't, I just, yes. otherwise, it's just a very, like, flat notion of no self. I mean, it doesn't even make sense to me. It just seems absurd when people are clearly acting out of self, but they're going on about no self. It's like, you know, it, it's kind of absurd. You, you can have an idea of no self. and It doesn't mean that you've kind of realized the fluidity of identity, right? Yeah. Or even weirder, some, I think people can have an experience of no self, but it not translate across yeah. different identity yeah. Uh, identifications. Yeah. So I think, you know, in a way, there's just like, there's no way around it. You kind of have to do the, the kind of hard kind of confrontational work of practice. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, just to refer back to the white, you know, the white awareness work, it's, it's really, really hard. You know, it's like, it's as hard as, actually, I think it's harder for me than when I did, you know, the, th- the three month Badger of Sattva retreat or the three month, you know, insight retreat. And it's as hard as any kind of sit and practice I've done. Um, you know, but, as with as with practice, there are kind of these like incredible moments of like movement and openness. Um, yeah, so I think yeah, that's kind of the trajectory I'm on, kind of on with it. And and in a way, I think that's why you know to answer my own question, you know, I'm not just doing social justice work in a kind of secular context. Like I do think there's something about doing this work in a kind of larger spiritual container, be it Buddhism, you know, or the Diamond Approach that for me just adds a different quality um and depth to the experience nice i think we've brought forever do you think we've lost all of our listeners (laughs) (laughs) i think i think this is a good place to stop (laughs) we i I think we talked like is it like two hours two two hours nine minutes and 34 seconds i'm sorry vince i'm no, not at all. This has been a beautiful conversation. I appreciate uh, I appreciate that we were able to go for this long. I know, me too. And it was like so personal. I'm just, all I can say is I'm really glad I've got tenure and I'm really glad <laughs> my book is out. <laughs> uh, me too. Thank you. Thank you for, I'm glad you have ten, tenure and your book is out too. <laughs> or else I'd be like, oh, I'm a bit nervous about kind of coming out so much as a practitioner. Well, yeah. So. Thank well, you. Yeah, no, it's been lovely. Thank you for the for the opportunity. My pleasure. Vince. Yeah, thank you. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice 
or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.